I was struck this week by one of the headlines from the free newspaper that I got on the bus as I came into the church office to study uh, this week, one of many headlines on the same subject. It's entitled, Blair Battles Through His Last Trial by TUC. As you'll know, it wasn't an easy trial. Some trade union delegates heckled him during his speech. Others held up placards of protest. And some unions even walked out. But trials, and I was struck the word trial was used, trials aren't limited to prime ministers. All of us face what we could call trials of different kinds at different times in our lives. And Christians aren't exempt from trials. In fact, if you are a Christian following Jesus Christ, then you will be persecuted and tried because you are a Christian. And that's what we've been learning in this little practical book of James in the New Testament, which we've entitled Faith That Works. Um, If you know where the books of the Bible are, this is the New Testament on the screen. It will help now to open the Bible uh, and look together with me at the verses we're going to focus on this morning. It's page, you'll see there, it's page 121. One, three. The reason we put this up on the screen is I am aware that some of us aren't familiar with the Bible. That's fine. It's an opportunity to find out what the Bible's about, where all the bits fit together. It will help to have a Bible, though, because we're going to look at it together and I'm simply going to try and explain it and with God's help apply what we learn there. The very first point that after his greeting the writer James makes is about trials. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, verse 2. And we saw in our opening study a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, and you can download it off the net or get a tape if you're interested, keeping up with the series, uh, we entitled it Tried and Tested, the first eight verses. And we saw that the reason why James says we can consider trials of many kinds to be pure joy is because God uses them as a test to strengthen and mature our faith and trust in him. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on James, the author Alec Mateer comments, and I like what he says, he says, the trial and test is a sort of divinely given homework in which we work out the truths God has taught us in his word. For it is through this exercise of working it out that we progress in knowledge and grow in spiritual stature. And we did our homework in our home groups meeting around the city this week. And if you did that, you'll know that James then goes on after the first eight verses. He moves into a second but related subject. It's another practical test of working out your faith. And his point basically is, if you want a summary, his point is this, every trial brings temptation. If you remember nothing else, if anybody goes, you go home and somebody says, what was it about? The point it was about is every trial brings temptation. So what happens if you fail the test and you give in to temptation? Who's to blame if the trial makes you bitter, for example, instead of better? Which is God's intention. And is there any way we can pass the test and not give in to temptation? Well, you'll be glad to know that our verses give us the answer. So we move, secondly, in our series, 
from tried and tested to a second thing, which is related, tried and tempted. Uh, I apologize for the change in the advertised program. When you come to look at the passage, sometimes you see a different perspective on it. Now, the section itself, we're looking at verses 9 to 18. If you look at it in front of you, there are two related parts here. Facing trial, verses 9 to 12. And then, secondly, facing temptation, verses 13 to 18. So, let's look at these two themes together. First of all, facing trial. Some people think that the book of James is all put together like lots of little sayings or statements and they're all just sort of strung together with no connection. But in actual fact, when you come to the next verses, in verses 9 to 12, there is a connection. Because verse 3 is all about trials, and verse 12 also mentions the same word, trial, the man who perseveres under trial. Uh, And James is still writing about the trials we face, and he, he takes an example here of the kind of trial that we face, which his readers were facing, and it's actually a trial that all of us here this morning face, or will face, in the future. It is, in fact, the most common trial, the most difficult trial. I wonder if I said to you, what do you think is the most difficult and common trial that Christians face today? What would your answer be? Well, Patrick Dale spoke to us last week from the Barnabas Trust. For many Christians, it may be persecution. Uh, And James wrote to people who were facing persecution. For others, the trial today may be sickness or debilitating, life-threatening illness. And I know that some of you are facing those situations. Uh, For others, especially though not exclusively younger people, the greatest trial today is living a pure life in a society that is bombarded by sexual images. And for others, again an increasing number, the big trial is the breakdown of relationships in our families and in our own personal lives. Or for you personally, it may be some different kind of trial altogether that maybe no one else knows about and you're under trial at the moment, facing difficulty. But the trial that James focuses on here is, I would suggest, the most common trial of all. It is simply the test of poverty and wealth. Verses 9 to 11. I've been recommending commentaries and they're available on the bookstool. I think probably the best commentary, if you're a serious Bible student, is James uh, Douglas Moo's commentary on James. And this is what he concludes his uh, discussion of verses 9 to 11. He says, So James may intend us to see poverty and wealth as a, or perhaps the, greatest test for the Christian. Now, it probably wasn't the first thing that sprang to your mind, but I would ask you to consider something. If you've read this book, and particularly the Gospels, It's an interesting exercise to go through the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus that's recorded in the four Gospels and actually highlight all the times he spoke about money and wealth and poverty. You'd be surprised what a common theme it is in the Gospels. Uh, Particularly, Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't have a foot in both camps. And James has just talked about that kind of person. He describes him as double-minded in verse 8. But before James focuses on the problem of the person who's rich, he starts with the person who's at the opposite end of the social scale, the person who is poor. He describes him as the brother in humble circumstances. And he talks about this problem, a problem about poverty. Now, if you look at the text, 
Uh, the word humble circumstances is actually just one word. It literally says the humble brother. And the word humble in the original, it means a person who is lowly. A person who's at the bottom of the social scale because they're materially poor. The Christians James were writing to, many of them had been forcibly evicted from their homes in Jerusalem and Judea and scattered around. And when they got there, they had no homes to go to. Very much like many thousands of Christians who've been forced out of Iraq and now in Syria. Or Christians in Lebanon with the recent fighting. You imagine, you saw those pictures on the screen, imagine you've got a nice house, a business and everything. Suddenly a bomb comes in and boom, it's all gone. And you have to get out with your family. And all you've got is all your possessions. You carry them in suitcase. What you find is not only that you're poor, but you're at the bottom of the pile as far as your social circumstances are concerned because money can normally buy you status. How do you think they felt? How do you face the problem of poverty? Now, James will see in this letter, he's going to tell us later about practical ways in which Christians need to support one another. But here he makes a sort of fundamental point about it. He says, if you're a Christian, your social status doesn't depend on how other people perceive you. The important thing is how God sees you. And James says, if you're a poor person, if you're a lowly person, if you're at the bottom of the social scale... Don't take pride in your high position. Uh, he says, literally, he says, the person who is in humble circumstances ought to take pride, rather, in his high position. Not socially, his high position in the sight of God. The word he uses there is literally, if you're a poor person, you should boast about the fact that in God's eyes, you're in a high position. As far as your status is concerned, in God's eyes, that's what's important. That's the solution. Take pride in your high position. So it's a challenge to those of us this morning who maybe you feel you're at the bottom of the social pile. Or how do you regard other people who are at the bottom of the social pile? What really matters to you? Where does your true security lie? And James says, and you pray it won't happen, but it could even in our society, if you lost everything materially, you are still able to take pride in your high position in God's eyes. You only find it out when you fall into that kind of trial. That's the test for the Christian. But there's also a challenge to the people at the other end of the social scale. There's a warning about wealth. He talks about the one who is rich. There's a lot of debate, and I want to rehearse all the arguments. When he talks about the one who is rich here, is he talking about rich people in general, or is he talking about Christians who are rich? I think he's probably talking about Christians who are rich Christians. And the Bible says there's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself, but there is a danger that you trust in your wealth and you rely on your wealth. And on the elevated social status it brings you. I have to be honest and say probably most of us in Charlotte Chapel, this is more of a problem than the opposite end of the scale. And he says, just because you're well off, don't take pride in that. Take pride, not in your high position, but in your low position. What does he mean? He says, take pride in the fact that you are identified with Jesus, who owned nothing, was despised and rejected, 
and in being identified with his people, especially we'll see with his lowly people, your fellow church members. And the wealthy person, he says, don't take pride in your riches. He doesn't say not because they won't last, although the Bible does say that in other places. His point, if you look carefully, he says, don't take pride in them because you won't last. He uses a lovely picture about the rich person who's like a wild flower. Remember many years ago when we lived in Pakistan and one of our neighbours on a, on a compound somewhere rang us up and said, you must come round to our house because our cactus has bloomed. They've got a big cactus in the garden. And I said, well, we might be a bit busy this evening. No, you've got to come today. Why? Because it blooms one day only and by tomorrow it will be gone. So we rushed around to see this cactus and it really was incredible. This cactus sat there as far as I could see for years and suddenly this beautiful pink flower just burst out of the cactus. We all took pictures of it and the next day, sure enough, it had gone. Disappeared. Now he's using a similar kind of picture here. He says the, wild, the rich person is like a person, like the wild flower and it blossoms and you say, isn't that beautiful? And then the wild Sirocco wind from the southeast comes in and just raises it to the ground it's decimated, it's glorious gone. Now, don't trust in your wealth, because it won't last. Because you won't last. And the picture he uses is a very telling picture. And it can apply to any one of us here. He says, there's the rich man, he's going about his business and suddenly he's gone. One writer puts it like this, it is while he is engaged on one of his business trips, that the rich man is struck down by what seems to be the ill wind of fate. Now, whatever wealth you've got in the bank, whatever size house you own, whatever your job is, whether you're a very important person in society, just thank God for it, but recognize this, not just that it won't last, but that you won't last. And you could be gone in a moment. So what really counts? What will last? Well, he says, there's a promised reward. The crown of life. Look at verse 12. He says, what you need to do is persevere under trial, verse 12, because when you've stood the test, you'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When you read the word, the crown of life, you think of one of those crowns like we have, you know, the, the nice gold ones that you put on the sovereign's head with, you know, with uh, jewels embedded in them. He, he's not talking about that here. The, the word used here is the, is the crown that you receive at the end of an athletics competition. It's the laurel wreath that the victor is awarded. The Apostle Paul used the same picture in 1 Corinthians. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He says, there's a promise here from God's word. Whether you're rich or poor, what you need to aim for is to receive the crown of life at the end of life. Whether you die of old age, whether you're cut down suddenly, you need to be sure that you receive the crown of life. How do you receive it? It's given to those who persevere under trial. Here's the same theme we saw in verses 3 to 4. The trials develop perseverance. Perseverance finishes its work. The finish is when we reach the final finishing tape. We're awarded the crown of life, but we must finish we must persevere. Don't give up. At the bottom end of the social scale, don't give up because you're poor. At the top end of the social scale, don't give up by relying on your riches and thinking you don't need God. 
But notice the second thing he says. It's also given to those who love him. You see, for a Christian, the supreme, your supreme motivation in finishing the race well is not really to get the crown. It's to get the approval of the one who gives the crown. You do it out of love for Christ. I began the service by saying, why are you here this morning? Maybe you're here because of habit. Maybe you're a student, your parents say, you better go to church on Sunday, so you came along to keep them happy. Well, it's better than not coming at all. But why do we meet together? Why do we read God's word? Why do we persevere in the trial? It's because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. So, I simply ask you this morning, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your goal at the end of it, that he might meet you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is, is that what you, you long for more than anything else? It's very challenging, isn't it? It's challenging for me. Am I doing it to get the approval of Charlotte Chapel? Doing a good job? Working hard? Or am I doing it because I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Now that's the first point facing trial. But success is not guaranteed. So look at the second theme that it kind of moves into now, which is facing temptation. Again, it may seem as though James just suddenly changes subject. He's talking about trials. And suddenly, in verse 13, he talks about being tempted. But in actual fact, there's a bit of a confusion here, because the word for trial and the word for tempted are the same word in the original language in Greek. And the meaning can either mean an external trial or an internal temptation. And you have to decide when you read it which one is meant. Uh, just take an example. The, we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Most of us are anyway. When we pray, lead us not into temptation. But if you read some modern versions and translations, it says, do not bring us to the test. It's actually the same word, and you have to decide which one is meant there. And so it is with James. So if you look at verse 13, you could actually translate it, when tried or facing trial, no one should say, God is tempting me to commit sin. The word tempted and tried is the same word. Let me try and summarize what James is saying, and then I've tried to think of an illustration which may help. In summary, what James is saying is, God uses trials to test and strengthen our faith, but never to tempt us to commit sin, because he does not have anything to do with evil. Alright, that's the principle. Now here's an illustration which I tried out on Colin and he thinks it works, but don't push it too hard because illustrations never work perfectly in every respect, alright? And again, it's something, isn't it strange as you get older, you can remember things that happened 40 years ago and you forget what happened 40 minutes ago. Well, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, I remembered something that happened to me when I was at school. I mentioned something the other week about school. This is sound like nostalgia hour, but anyway. Um, when I was at school, I went to a boys' grammar school and I was studying with what was called then the GCE, which is what you sit when you're 15 or 16. And I did GCE maths. And we had a maths teacher who used to give us maths homework, which all good teachers do, of course. And he gave us these maths problems, and basically, as with all homework, you fill them in, you put down your workings, you put your answers, and the next day you handed them in to be marked by the teacher. Now, in, in our school, what the teacher did, the maths teacher did, when you came the next day with your homework, he went through the homework on the blackboard, and explains how you got to the answers and what the correct answers were. 
Which is, you say, every teacher would do that. But not every teacher would do it before you handed the homework in. (laughs) And after the first week, the class realised that it was possible... to write in the answers while the teacher was going through them on the board and then at the end of the class to hand them in and you always got them correct because he'd just given you the answer on the board. Now, a few pupils, honest pupils like myself, (laughs) handed ours in anyway without cheating. The result was, I still remember it, my mother and father went to the parents' evening and they came back and they said, you're doing well in every subject except maths. The teacher says you're behind the rest of the class because your homework's not been very good. And I tried to explain to my parents there was no problem and that this wasn't an issue. Come the actual exam, (laughs) I gained a good, though not outstanding, (laughs) pass, while the ones, some of the ones who cheated didn't pass at all. Now, supposing the ones who didn't pass said, I'm going to make an official complaint to the school because the teacher put temptation in my way by doing the problems and the answers on the board before we handed the homework in. He has made me commit sin. Surely not. That was never the teacher's intention. He never thought they might be cheating, which is where the illustration breaks down, of course. It never crossed his mind. Why did he set the homework? To enable us to pass the test. To strengthen and improve our maths ability. Now, back to the text, alright? I hope this helps, but it doesn't just ignore it, alright? God's intention in using trials of many kinds that we face in life is to strengthen and develop our faith and trust in Him so that we pass the test and we win the prize. But there is within every test a potential to sin. Our poverty, if we are poor, it may cause us to doubt God's goodness and providence and power to help us. Or our prosperity may tempt us to think, I'm doing fine, I don't need God at all and ignore him. And so every test brings temptation. And the Bible is full of them. Just two quick illustrations. Here's a test that was passed. In the Old Testament, this is. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, father of Israel. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Mount Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. Big test. Can you trust God? What's God doing here? You say, no way. Barbaric. Or do you say, there must be something in this that I can trust God. That's what Abraham did, he passed the test. Now, think of failing the test. Here's the worst example. The first example. Paradise. test that was failed. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Sadly, Adam failed the test. He was tempted. And he sinned. So when Adam sinned, who was to blame? Some witness once said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Well, (laughs) 
What Adam actually said, what did he actually say? When God confronted him with his guilt, what he said is, the woman you put here with me gave me and I ate. In other words, it's your fault for giving me that woman. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So who is to blame when we are tempted and when we sin? James will not entertain for a moment the idea that it's God's fault. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And although we'll see in James chapter 4 verse 7 that he believes in the devil, he doesn't blame the devil either. No, he places the responsibility on the shoulders of each one of us. When we sin, we are personally responsible. Many, many years ago, in the Times newspaper, there was an article entitled, Who is to blame for the problems of the world? And all sorts of correspondents answered on the letters page in the Times. The shortest response, in fact the shortest letter that was, has ever been received by the Times, came from G.K. Chesterton, a well-known Christian, Christian apologist and speaker. His letter said, Who is to blame for the problems of the world? He wrote, I am your sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Absolutely. All of us are responsible. We have personal responsibility. It's what he says. Each one of us, verse 14. There's nothing wrong with temptation. We are all subject to temptation. No one can avoid being tempted. It is what we do with it. Another famous quote from C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. Spurgeon said, You cannot avoid the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them building a nest in your hair. There is within each one of us the propensity to allow the birds to build a nest in our hair, to give house room to sin, so that we commit it. So, what he says here is the process begins with what he calls evil desire. When you're tempted, there is something within you, a bias of propensity, to desire to do what is evil. In fact, the original just says desire. The NIV is out of the word evil, because desire depends on what kind of desire it is. Jesus said he eagerly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. That's a positive use of the word. The authorised version translates it lust, restricting it to sexual sin. But it's broader than that. It is evil desire. So we dwell on the temptation and the lure looks so attractive that we are taken in by it, we're enticed and then we're dragged away. Those of us who do fish know how difficult it is to actually persuade a salmon, especially one that's about to spawn upriver, to take a lure, even an attractive one. But it's much easier to tempt a person to sin. All of us know how easily we're seduced by sin, what it seems to offer, so we take the bait, we are caught, and then he says, the desire gives birth to action, to sin, and sin doesn't stop there with a single action. It becomes a habit, a way of life, that leads, he says, when it is full grown, to death. Death is the ultimate consequence, but it begins in this life. Death, biblically, means being separated from the life of God and for what God intends for us. And unless we do something about it, we're in real trouble. It is a tragic consequence for every one of us. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And each one of us is personally responsible. We cannot blame God. And so he summarises, we're coming near the end, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Notice, it's a great letter because he identifies with them. He says, listen, dear brothers, I know what you're going through. I'm one of them. I'm tempted. Don't be deceived about God. He's the giver of good, not evil. 
Every good gift and perfect gift comes down, every good and perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Literally, verse 17 says, every good giving and every perfect gift comes from above. He describes God as the Father of lights. The word heavenly has been added. God who created light in the darkness and chaos of the world, bringing hope and healing and health. Yet unlike these lights that move and change across the sky, bringing shadows, God is totally consistent. He always and only gives what is good. And James concludes by reminding them that the greatest gift that God gives us is the gift of new life. God is the author of good, not evil. He's the author of life, not death. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God who created the heavenly lights has got a new creation. And that new creation is people. He says he gives new birth to people who hear the word of truth, who hear the good news about Jesus and respond to it in repentance and faith and God puts new life within us. Jesus talked about, he said, to a very religious person, he said, how am I going to make it? How am I going to get in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you've got to be born again, born from above. You need the life of God within you to help you to live a life that can resist temptation and head in the opposite direction. And he says, God has got this great plan to make creation new. And those who respond are like the first fruits of a great harvest of people who respond to the good news about Jesus Christ. And he says, God didn't have to do this. He chose to give us new life, graciously. Now as we come towards the conclusion, the question is, have you got that new life? Have you been born again of the Spirit of God? How are you getting on with temptation? How are you getting on with the things that entice you when you go out from it? The things you can even now be thinking about while I'm talking about the Bible. Such is our nature. Are you winning the battle with God's help? say, it's just impossible. Yes, it is. That's why Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never make it. Only God's Spirit can help you. This is what the Gospel is about. It's the word of truth that he talks about. The word of truth about Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Final, final conclusion. All right. There are many things I'm sure Tony Blair will miss when he finally resigns as Prime Minister, and I have no inside news about when it will be. But... His annual visit to the TUC Congress will not be among the things that he misses. He has battled, as the headline said, through his last trial by TUC. But there are many trials he'll continue to face, even when he reverts to being a backbencher or probably makes a fortune selling his memoirs or doing something else. But Christians can face trials with assurance because we have incentives to help us. And our verses have given us two incentives to help us to face trials and not to be tempted. First of all, we have new life in the present, a new relationship with God, but we're also assured of a crown of life in the future. I suspect that as Christians, we've shifted our focus from the future to the present. I know we need to live in the present. I know that we, it's not just about pie in the sky when you die and all that kind of thing. But it is about a future hope that we have as Christians. And it's when you're under trial that it becomes real. Many of us heard Patrick Sukdeo speak last week. A few, sadly only a few of you, came to hear him on the Saturday and it was amazing and well worth hearing. He shared a story, and I conclude with this, it's in the news at the moment. 
some time ago when the fighting was at its worst, he went to Darfur to one of the refugee camps in Sudan to visit the Christians there who were living in those refugee camps. And not all of them are Christians, but there are many Christians. In fact, the church is growing astronomically in that situation. At night time, Patrick said, he was given a hut to sleep in. And he noticed that a guy had gone on the roof of the hut and painted a cross on it. And he was a bit intrigued by this, so he said to the guy, why have you painted a cross on the hut where I'm about to sleep? And he said, the man had a remarkable answer. He said, if we are attacked or bombed tonight, we don't want the huts of non-Christians to be targeted because they're not ready to die. But we mark our huts so they know we're Christians because when we are hit or killed, we know we're ready and we'll go and be with Christ. Crown of life. See, when you're facing trials, that's when it really counts. I wonder if you wanted a cross in those circumstances painted on the roof of your house. Do we have that kind of faith? A faith like that described in this book of James. A faith that works. I hope so. Let's pray together.